AD 30, Jesus is killed. And Jesus, amazingly, three days later, rises again. And the early church uh, bursts into life. And we read about that all the way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And uh, quite early on, this chap called Saul, who was one of the uh, chief persecutors of Christians, was going around uh, gathering Christians up, uh, putting them in prison, having some of them executed. This chap called Saul has this amazing experience where on the way to Damascus, he meets uh, Jesus uh, face to face, and he becomes a Christian. Uh, Paul goes away uh, to think, uh, to pray, uh, to learn about the faith. And he comes back and he starts to go on uh, missionary journeys around the Mediterranean. He's convinced, Paul's convinced, that God is going to call him uh, to convert lots of his fellow Jews, because he was a really, really faithful Jew. Uh, God says to him, actually, your main job is going to be taking uh, the gospel of Jesus uh, to Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, around uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean. And so he came to a place called Ephesus. And in Ephesus, for two years, uh, Paul essentially ran like a missionary training school. And one of the people that came to his missionary training school was a chap called Epaphras. And for two years, Epaphras lived with Paul, worked with him, began to understand what it meant to be a missionary and how to live out the faith. Epaphras then is, it goes off to quite a small place called Colossae, which is on the banks of the Lycus River in what we would now call Turkey. And he arrives there, and there's no church in Colossae, and Colossae is like a medium-sized city. It's quite multicultural because it's on a bit of a, a trade route. And he plants a church in that city. And like all churches in those days, they didn't have a building. They'd have met in a house or some houses together. And so that little church gets going. Paphras loves them. He serves them. He's a great pastor of that church. Church runs into one or two problems. And Epaphras is talking to Paul. Paul is now in prison. He's possibly in prison back in Ephesus or he's in Rome. We're not quite sure which of those two. And he goes to Paul and says, well, these are some of the things that are going on in my church. Paul says, I'm going to write them a letter. And so he writes them the letter that we know today as the letter to the Colossians. So Jenny's about to read the first part of it. I want you to imagine, and this may be a pleasure to many of you, that you're not actually in Winchester in quite a cold church in 2022. I want you to imagine that you are in Colossae, it's probably the year 60 AD. We're pretty sure it's the year 60 because in 61 AD, there was a massive earthquake that knocked down, flattened the whole of Colossae. And there's not been a Colossae ever since. And in fact, there's still a big heap of rubble where Colossae used to be, and they've never found the funds to go digging it. And like I think, wouldn't that be cool to go and find Epaphras' house, uh, which is probably still there under all this rubble. Anyway, that's where they are. They're in, they're in Colossae. They're in someone's house. You're all crammed in together. You probably just had a lovely meal. You might have sung a bit, as we have here. And then Epaphras stands up, not with a Bible, because there's no such thing yet. He just has a, a little scroll of papyrus, and that's how they sent letters in those days. And Epaphras unwinds the scroll and starts to read this letter of staggering vision and staggering hope. And Jenny's going to bring the first part of that for us now. The reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, 
and to Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all the love we have for all God's people. The faith, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. What I'd like to do quickly uh, with you tonight is answer a simple question, and that is what happens when the gospel of Jesus lands in someone's life? And in a sense, we start with three examples. We've got Saul, who became Paul. We've got Epaphras, who went on this training course and then went to become a church planter. We've got wonderful Sanjay, uh, who was there in Mumbai and now is called uh, miraculously here to Stanmore uh, for the next chapter of his own journey. I want to chart with you what happens when the seed of the gospel lands in a life and how uh, we can, in a sense, those we individually, we can make sure that's happening with us, but also how we can help our friends and our family uh, as we uh, pray for the seed of the gospel to land in their hearts and lives too. First of all, these are the three things that happen. The first thing that happens is that faith and love spring up inside them. And that we see particularly in verse 5 of chapter 1. Faith and love. It's like the seed becomes a little fountain inside a person. When that seed of the gospel lands, what happens is that this love and this faith begin to spring up slowly at first but then often turning in to a gush and a fountain that not only blesses them, but also begins to bless other people around them. It's not any old love, and it's not any old faith. It's completely thanks to Jesus. It's his love that finds a place in our heart that then begins to change us. Now, next week, we're going to be looking in a lot more detail at some of the key things that Colossians says about Jesus. And one of the most powerful 
passages in the whole of the New Testament about Jesus is coming next week, the second half of Colossians chapter 1. And a bit like John's gospel, it takes us right back to the beginning of time and then sort of draws this huge picture, but says in all of human history, there's never been a more important moment than the cross and all the love that was shown and all the forgiveness that was won in that place. So when the seed of the gospel lands in our hearts, that's one of the first things that happen, that faith and love in Jesus begin to spring up inside of us. It is about our head, but it's also about our heart when that seed of the gospel lands inside us. I just thought each of us, if, if you would say you are a Christian, will have had very different starting points. Now, my own starting point was partly through my family and partly through some friends who befriended me when I was in my teens and showed me a completely different way to live my life. I don't know what your starting point was. But eventually, and we'll come back to this in a second, it's got to be head and heart that are both engaged. It's also never totally individual. So when the seed of the gospel lands in our heart, begins to sort of just you know, spring up in love and faith, we're always also drawn into community with other Christians. And that is often a double-edged experience for us because there will be the experience of being encouraged by other Christians, seeing other Christians who maybe are one or two steps further on in the faith than we are, and learning from them, and copying what they do, and being able to come to services like this and be part of a small group, all those different things. But of course, the second you put more than two people in a room together, you also get conflict. And so there's that kind of hard thing about being with people that annoy you, being with people who see things differently than you do. That's all part of being, of being in the community of faith. And so if your experience of church is double-edged like that, then that's how church is. And if you keep on looking for the perfect church, you won't find it, even if you found one in Antarctica all on your own. There is no perfect church anywhere in the world. So the first thing that happens is that love and faith begin to spring up. The second thing that happens is a process of slow but sure transformation. Now, because I'm so old, I love kind of gardening and things growing. And so I love this passage because there's so many uh, potent, uh, lovely images of uh, what it means for things to grow and to sort of come into bud and to blossom. That may not be your thing. That's cool. Uh, what matters is that uh, Paul says that when we become a Christian, when the seed of the gospel lands in our hearts, what begins to happen is this slow but sure transformation. I wonder if that's been your experience. And the particular insight uh, that he brings to this letter, both here but much more in chapter 3, which we'll come to in a few weeks' time, the particular insight he brings is this, that when you're a Christian, it feels like you stand in a whole new place. So you used to be over there, but now you're over here. And this whole new place where you stand is because of a new identity that you have. And it's a new identity that is marked by love and by grace. So when you were over here, your old identity may have been made up of success and failure or family or things that you liked or things that you didn't like or the tribe that you identified with. 
Paul says, when you become a Christian, all of that, it's not that it's unimportant, but the foundation on which you stand is one of gratitude to God for his love and for his grace. And so every day we wake up as a Christian and we say, I'm so glad to be living in God's world. I'm so glad to be surrounded by the beauty that God has given. I'm so glad to, be, to have ability and gift and capacity that I can go out and use in service of other people. I thank God for friendship, but of course I thank God unbelievably and particularly because of the gift of grace. That I can be right with him because of all that Jesus did on the cross. And so Paul says we stand in a place that is called gratitude. And that's and I, I apologize for the kind of 10% of cheese in this thanks living sermon series title. Because uh, it does have a, and I have, people have been pulling my leg about it all day long. Uh, but I love it because I think we need to invent and use and love this new word. Because thanksgiving, which is a thing that most Christians understand that we do, isn't a big enough word for what Paul wants our lives to look like. He wants our, our whole of our lives to be one of gratitude to God for all that he is and all that he's given. And for him, it's not enough that uh, we say some prayers at home, we come to church and we sing and we worship. All of those are fantastic things. But he wants to open our eyes bigger and make our horizons further away. And he says the whole of our life, every single part of it, can be lived as an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so therefore, with apologies, we're saying it's about thanks living. Now, we're going to come back to that in chapter 3. This is going to blow your mind because, of course, that changes everything. There's now no compartmentalizing my life, having my little Sunday God bit here with maybe a tiny couple of points in the week and the rest is all different. Every single part of my life is, has the capacity for me to give thanks and praise to God. That changes ethics, doesn't it? That changes the way we see our work that, see, that changes the way we see our relationships and our leisure time. It's amazingly liberating. Imagine what your life would look like even for one day if every single part of your life was an expression, of course in frailty, because none of us are perfect, but an expression of love and gratitude to God for the abundance that he has given. And that's the, the vision that Paul holds out for us. The third thing that we see is that uh, when the seed of the gospel lands in your heart, you are drawn into a life of hope-filled and never-ending prayer. I wonder if that's been uh, your experience. Uh, it's a particular kind of prayer. It's prayer that is selfless and generous and wholehearted. It's a prayer that is rooted in hope. Now, in my experience, that kind of prayer is really the only antidote to self-pity. I think last two years... Self-pity's been right up there, hasn't it? So many things to feel gloomy about, so many things to feel sorry for ourselves about. Those of you who are students, you're thinking, you know, all these other people who've been students a couple of years ahead of you, or your parents, they've had this amazing experience of university, and basically your university experience has been locked down and COVID, and it's just not fair, it's just rubbish. 
or you've had the same experience at school or in your work. Self-pity constantly beckoning us. Come and play. Come and sit down with us. Just come and be miserable. That is absolutely blown out of the water by the kind of praying that we start to overhear from Paul. You know, just when you go back tonight, just look at what he prays for other people. And, and if, if, like me, sometimes, you know, someone sort of unburdens themselves and says something to you, and, and you say the kind of automatic sort of Christian thing, you know, I'll pray for you. And then you kind of kick yourself, or you think, well, okay, I've, I, I better do that now. But you think, well, what, what do I pray? How do I pray? Well, just, if you, if you don't know where to begin, just go to the letters of Paul. You know, how about this? How about praying this for me this week? We continually ask God to fill Simon with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that Simon may live a life worthy of the Lord and Simon may please God in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that Simon might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. And on it goes. Man. Imagine if Simon's life looked like even one twentieth of that. When the seed of the gospel lands in your heart, you start to look at other people and other situations in a whole different way. And we are liberated from the feeling that life is all about me. And it's all about my successes and my dramas and my problems and my issues. And we're liberated to become the kind of people who pray those kinds of prayers for everybody, for the people that we know, for the people that we don't know. Let's pray that for Sanjay, just even this coming week. Pray for Sanjay as he just gets into his new role in Stanmore. But that's what we are gathered into when the gospel lands in our heart. And that's how Paul starts this hope-filled letter. Remember, you might have forgotten this, because it kind of sounds like the kind of letter you'd write from Mauritius three weeks into a holiday. When you're completely chilled and life is looking fantastic. You know, you've had two margaritas uh, and you've had some wonderful food and the sun's just going down and you're thinking, man, life does not get better than this. Paul is writing this. He is in prison. He's either in prison for the first time or the second time. If it's for the second time, he's going to get the chop quite soon. But either way, he's in prison. This is a tiny little church. We don't know how many people there is, but we might guess 30 or 40 people in a village or a town that was probably quite antagonistic because most towns were in those days. But Paul says to them that there is a deeper, truer picture of what is actually going on in the world. And the world is brighter and sharper and deeper than they can imagine and what they need to do is they need to see the world through God's eyes, as Paul has begun to. Now, at the start of this new year, um, I would argue that hope is a rare commodity. There are countless reasons to be gloomy. Here are my top three follow-ons from this fascinating beginning to Paul's uh, ancient letter. The first one is this. Did you notice how the, gospel, how the gospel lands in a human heart? It's here in the passage, and we heard it in what Sanjay said too, how it all begins. This is how uh, Paul describes it in verse 6. He says, Since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. That's how the seed of the gospel lands. We need to hear the gospel and we need to understand it. 
Now, some of you maybe have never heard actually a Christian sit down for five or ten minutes and say, this is what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is. And if you've never heard someone say that, then please badger us until we do. There are a few things in our life that give us more pleasure than sitting down with somebody who says, I just want to hear and I want to understand what the gospel is. We will never, ever be too busy to have that conversation with you. So whether you're listening online, whether you're here in the building, if you feel either you don't actually even know quite what Christians believe, or if you've kind of heard it, but actually it makes no sense to you and you can't put it together, then come and talk to one of us. Or if that feels a bit heavy and a bit intense, uh, then uh, we're, ha- we're starting two Alpha courses uh, very soon. There is a, a special student Alpha course, which I guess probably has lots of different kinds of food. Will that be the big thing? Yeah, exactly. Just pizza, yeah, pizza and beer or something, I don't know. Um, And then we're doing another Alpha course uh, which starts uh, on Wednesdays uh, in February. Uh, That's really good because what happens at an Alpha course is that you set the agenda. And so you just say, well, here are the things that I don't understand that I want to understand. And I, I know that you're clever people and I know that you understand lots of things that I don't understand. Uh, but in order for the seed of the gospel to land in a human heart, we have to hear it. We have to understand it. And the Christian understanding of understanding is that that means we own it. We take hold of it. We don't just assent to it and say, yes, I agree that this is correct. But we actually believe it. We own it. It becomes part of us. Now, if you're not Uh, If you are a Christian, uh, then this is still really important because don't presume that the people around you have either heard or certainly understood uh, the gospel of Jesus because they might not have done. You know, we're living in a totally different society now. When, when When I was a student, which is a very long time ago, you could just about hope that half of the people who came to church any student church and any student town had some kind of background or understanding of what Christian faith was, either through their school or through RE at school or through church experience. And so therefore, often, it was a case of saying to people, you know what a Christian is, let me tell you how to become one. Nowadays, of course, we're in an entirely different situation. And lots of people don't know what the good news is, and they certainly don't understand it. So if somebody writes off the Christian faith, don't think they've written it off because they've heard and understood it. They've almost certainly written it off off because they haven't heard it and they haven't understood it. Don't be judgy, but be patient with them. Sometimes people are, in a sense, saying, I don't believe this, this, and this about God. And it's wonderful. You can come alongside them and say, well, I don't believe that, that, and that about God either. Let's talk about what the Bible says about God. And often that's very different from what that person thinks the Bible says about God. So the seed of the gospel, although it happens in so many different ways because we're all so different, when it lands in a heart, it needs us to hear and it needs us to understand what the gospel is about. And we as a church are going all out to make that happen either individually or through the two alphas that we're running. Tom Wright, who's a wonderful theologian, describes the gospel as the story that explains and the message that transforms. 
And it's both of those things. And that is such a clever way of putting it. So the story of the good news of Jesus explains the world. And it explains God. And it explains all of our yearnings. And it makes sense of things. You know, finally, a way of looking at the world that actually makes sense in a satisfying and in an intellectually powerful way. But it's not only that, it's also a message that transforms. It gets into our hearts and it starts to subvert all the rubbish that we once believed. And it starts to change us as people. And it starts to change the way we relate to other people. And then suddenly, Sanjay style, it's making a difference here and there. And he's planting a church and he's starting a kids ministry and he's working with the Air Force in, in the Royal Air Force in, in Britain. I mean, how did that happen? That's how the gospel works. It's, a, it's first of all, this story that explains, it makes sense of things. Gives us an intellectually satisfying and coherent way of looking at the world, but it also transforms us from the inside. That's the first thing. Second thing is, remind you, not that you need reminding, that we are surrounded by anxious people who are seeking fulfillment and who are bemoaning how awful their lives are and they're longing to be good and they're disillusioned that they can never be good. They can't get close to being good. People like that need good news. We have good news, okay? We have good news. And yet we're so shy and we're so timid and we're so scared. And I put myself first in the queue uh, for all of those things. We have good news, good news for our world, good news about our life with God, good news for our time here on earth. We have good news, sisters. We have good news, brothers. Lastly, every ideology and political vision is continually put to the test and found wanting. Let's go back to Epaphras. He's in what we now call Turkey, nearly 2,000 years ago, about the year AD 60. He stands up with his little scroll of paper. And he starts reading this letter that a guy who's in prison has written. Now, if you were there at that moment, and you were a betting person, and you had to bet, who's going to win out of those two? Is it A, going to be the power of mighty Rome, who basically had taken over the whole of the Mediterranean, and going right up here, you know, including England, not Scotland, who were powerful, who were clever, who were doing all these amazing... Would you, would you put your bet with Rome? Would you put your bet with little Epaphras in his house with his little scroll? And of course, all of us would have bet on Rome. They had all that power, all that authority. And yet what happens? It's Rome that withers and fails, corrupt and redundant, eaten up uh, from the inside despite its many successes. And it's the gospel that quietly gets under the skin of Rome and begins to subvert it and begins to change it. And that's what Paul's saying. All kinds of things we see on the surface, but underneath, you've got Sanjay in Mumbai becoming a Christian despite the antagonism of his friends and his family, despite being chucked out of his home. He goes to a Bible school. He learns how to plant churches. He plants 14 churches, and now he's here in England. That's how the gospel works. It's so exciting. It's so beautiful. 
so powerful. So let me ask you some questions as we end tonight. You are allowed to answer. Would you like to be part of a church here at Christ Church in 2022 that takes the gospel of Jesus seriously and joyfully? Would you like to be part of that church? Yeah, yeah great. Would you like to be part of a church that believes that we have good news that makes sense of the world and that brings change? Would you like to be part of that kind of church? Would you like to be part of a church that rises above the dismal little lies that our culture is trying to force down our throats? Good. Would you like to be part of a church that is experiencing a slow but sure transformation, that is learning to live in gratitude, that has people in it that are living in gratitude to God in every part of their lives? Would you like to be part of that kind of church? Would you like to be part of a church where you can learn to get drawn into the cycle of hope-filled, unending, generous prayer? Would you like to be part of that kind of church? Great. We can do this. We can do this. Every generation of Christians, and we are no different, has to do this afresh. We have that chance as we start this year. We have to shake off institutional inertia and hopelessness. We have to regain the radical loving edge of uh, the New Testament and of those early disciples. The, the radical loving edge of the gospel is dulled by two things in particular, and they're two things that England and the Church of England are absolutely amazing at, and those things are money and respectability. And we've got to say those things are not as important to us as honoring Jesus and as sowing the seed of the gospel in other people's hearts. You know, wouldn't it be amazing if we as a congregation just started to say, let the seed of the gospel land in me and then let it do its work and have the faith and the love to go where Jesus leads. And if I was a praying person, that would lead into all kinds of places. That would lead into the dark places of Winchester. And it would lead to all kinds of places in other parts of our country where the need for the gospel to be heard and shown and lived out is even more stark and desperate than it is here in Winchester. And it would lead some of you to go to other parts of the world, be it as an engineer or a medic or as a farmer or as whatever it is you're going to be. This is a beautiful letter because it shows how these little small seeds of the gospel that land in individual human hearts begin to make such a difference when we let God be God and when we let our gratitude to him for the place we now find ourselves in overflow, both in us and in those around us. Let's please stand as we finish together. Loving God, we stand in a place of gratitude, so many of us. 
for all that you have done and all that you have given. And we commit uh, tonight, dear God, uh, together to learn as a community what it means uh, to live in gratitude. And loving God, we uh, pray for those here or those online who would say they've not, they've not heard the gospel or they've not understood it. Lord, please come with your light and your power and your love and show them how much you love them and show them how precious they are in your sight and show them that nothing can separate them from your love. Lord, we pray that we would be humble but courageous as we respond to the seed of the gospel that you've put in our heart. And we don't know where it's going to lead. Epaphras didn't, Sanjay didn't, I didn't. So many of us don't know where you are leading. But we want to pray that we would be courageous and that we would boldly and lovingly follow you. We want to pray to loving God as we, uh, as we live in this world which needs good news and is just desperate for good news. We pray that, of course, in your mercy and, of course, in your strength, each one of us would be able to live out the gospel and tell it and explain it and put clothes on it so it would be seen and known and so that the seeds of the gospel would continue to spread beautifully and gloriously. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.